0: Good morning, everyone. Uh, it's a little, a little weak. Thank you, Jesse. Good morning, everyone. Hey, I wanted to show that video because uh, I love being a dad. I have four kids. We got pregnant two weeks after we got married. <laughs> yeah. Woo! We weren't quite ready for that. But uh, being a dad is one of the greatest honors and privileges of my life. And to connect the nothing has helped me connect the dots between God the Father and this incredible concept of grace than understanding fatherhood. And so this morning we're going to be continuing on with our series. We're in week two of a series called Galatians, Transformed by the Gospel of Freedom. Can't wait to preach uh, to you guys here in a few minutes. So uh, one announcement that we have... For you ladies, there is a seminar being put on by another church here called Women Teaching Women, and this is a, there will be three gatherings, the cost is $25 to be part of this, Laura Hollenberger is going, Teaching Women to Teach, teach. thank you, and uh, we have a lot of gifted women In our church, a lot of able teachers, and we want to empower you. We want to get behind you. And so please consider that. If you have any questions, you can ask Laura about that. So, Marianne and Christy, why can't we be friends? (laughs)
1: Why can't we be friends? Good morning! Like you said, my name is Marianne, and this is Christy. Hi, guys. Hello. (laughs) We have a few announcements. The first one, like John was trying to say, was why can't we be friends? We have a Facebook page and an Instagram page. Look us up, H2O Church or H2O Church Orlando. Click that like button so you can get all of our up-to-date announcements.
2: My turn, okay. (laughs) So, um, the last, let's see. Three Sundays, we've been talking about um, helping our dear friend, Lynn Lewis, um, sell her home. She is a new widow and a member of our church, and oh my gosh, you guys rock. Like, we have had, is it two or three events? I can't remember. Two
1: official events. Only two? But like
2: We've gotten so much work done at her house, you guys. It's been such a huge blessing. So, yesterday... We had 25 people show up, go Eastside, and go Downtown Life Group. Thank you so much. And we got a ton done. We, like, power washed the whole back patio and, like, pulled weeds. And we had trucks going to the dump and going to, like, donate stuff and just packing. And, you guys, this is something Lynn would never be able to do on her own. And we just want to thank you and just celebrate just how wonderful this is. And so we look forward to doing more to help her. So um, stay tuned. We'll let you know. But um, I am just so thankful and just so touched by everything you guys have been doing. And the worship this morning just totally undid me, Jesse. So thank you so much. Like, I really love you guys. So, okay, what's my other announcement? Radiant. Okay. <laughs> Radiant. Okay, ladies. Woo-hoo. Gosh, we got so much good lady stuff going on. So Radiant is coming up February 1st. So women, pull out your phones, put it on your calendar. I like this is such a powerful ministry. We do it every two months. Mm -hmm. It's going to be at 630 at Allison Poorman's house. If you're interested, write it on your blue card and I'll send you the address. But we're going to have food. And um, my dear friend Marisol is going to share And you guys, I know Marisol like maybe this much, and I love her. Like she, you know, this is where we're real and we're raw. We talk about pain, we talk about loss, and we talk about faith, and we talk about doubts. And it's always an amazing time. God shows up, the Holy Spirit moves, and I'm pretty sure I can speak for almost everybody. We never regret going to an irradiant. Like God touches us. So whatever you can do to be there please come. All right, is that
1: it? Yeah? Okay. Our last announcement is on February 2nd, we're going to have the Sunday service upstairs in the mess. So who here was who was here during the Christmas like Christmas service? Raise your hand. Remember how fun it was to have all the kids and everybody involved in one room? Let's do it again. <laughs> So February 2nd, we'll keep reminding you up until then. We'll put a sign on the door. All you know, all the children, they're still going upstairs to Splash, and we're going to have a great Sunday service up there. Um, and then afterwards, we'll bring the children out for the last three worship songs, and they'll be moving and grooving with us, and it'll be a great, great blessing. And oh. if you can show up early that morning, we need yeah. help moving stuff upstairs. So that would be awesome. All the row cases, all the pianos, everything is going upstairs. So we'll definitely need extra hands. Thank you for that. Please stand up, meet and greet somebody around you, refill your coffee, and we're going to get started here very shortly.
0: All right, everybody, if you can make your way back to your seats, we'll get started here. Like I said, we're in week two of this series on Galatians. Uh, we actually haven't begun. I, have, I think I sh- alluded to a verse from Galatians last week. We haven't gotten actually into the book. And uh, I'm going to give a very long introduction here again. So just sit back before we actually open up the scripture. Now, I did mention that uh, we got pregnant two weeks after getting married, and we have four kids. Did I mention that we've been married for 31 years, and last week was our anniversary? And it was a train wreck. It was horrible. We were gonna to go to Cress, which is a nice place. We, we tend to make a big deal out of, out of our covenant, out of our commitment to one another. And uh, so one of our daughters called, or texted and said, I'm coming home tomorrow, so let me show you which one. Put up the next slide of my family, please. And um, we had a Harry Potter theme going on, just so you know, and Kara, the one to the far right, is a flight attendant. And so she gets time off every now and then, and she said, hey, I'm coming home tomorrow. And Jana and I are like, this is our anniversary. We try to be very sensitive to the needs of our kids. We, we keep attuned. And we just thought, you know what? We just, we just think something's going on. We need to just yield that and give that up for her. And, and there was. And, and I had a beautiful father-daughter talk with Kara. And it's like, high five, this is worth it, great call. And then Jenna and I got into a fight. Now, in case you're new and you're not used to pastors confessing when they have a fight with their wives, it's because you've been in another place where people tend to lie. We all do this. (laughs) Everyone struggles. And we want to uh, exemplify a faith that's very honest and real. So... uh, Now, my wife is not here this morning. That's a whole other story. Her mom fell for the sixth time in three weeks and had surgery. Yeah, it's a whole deal. But because she's not here, then, uh, you know, my version of the story is what gets told. My version of the story is that this was my fault. So everyone make sure, repeat that. John's fault. When she comes home, you can say that's what I said. So uh, I... I believe I said something that was harsh, and she responded with something that was harsh. And then the Holy Spirit just came on us, and we just immediately made up, and uh, no, that's not what happened. Uh, I forgot all about grace, and so for about three days, I kind of stewed, having a bad attitude, and, and then God reminded me. God brought me back to what I'm going to talk about here today, because let me tell you, it's way easier to put grace as a little theological concept in your back pocket, it's a lot easier to know what the Bible teaches about grace than it is to live it out. And so after about three or four days, God reminded me that he had sent his son to die on the cross for me when I was his enemy and to pull me into this position of unmerited favor where I get everything free and how hypocritical that I'm distant from my wife God connected the dots for me in a very real way, and so I did move toward her. It's interesting that what I was feeling and the place of my hurt was I felt felt missed. I felt like that matters to me. I want my heart to be known. I want people to know who I am. And I felt like my wife was missing my heart. And then God brought that up with me, too. It's like, don't you understand grace, that grace is my heart? And the dots began to connect for me this this week as I thought about this topic. I want to tell you the greatest story that's ever been told here this morning. Um, It's not my greatest story. This is Jesus' story, the story of the prodigal son, Luke chapter 15. Those of you that are familiar with the story you're going to have to work hard at letting the story become strange to you for a minute. Because we get so familiar with deep biblical truth that it loses its power on us. This is meant to be strange and shocking. So the story goes like this. One day a son came to his father, who obviously was still living, and said, can you give me my share of the inheritance? You're still alive, Dad, but I want your money, is what he was saying, extremely rude, extremely offensive. The father graciously gave him his share of the inheritance. Before we go on, I want you to know that this is not the story of a Christian backsliding away from God. This is every human being's story, that we want what God offers. We want to live without relationship with him. We want just what he gives. That's the story, and we end up becoming lost. And so the son takes the father's wealth and goes and spends it all on women, wine, and song, emphasis on women, I believe. And he reaches this low state. Life turns on him, and, and he is disconnected from the father. Like, he's not on Facebook, there's no Instagram, no text going back between the father and the son anymore. Total disconnection, I really don't care if you're in my life. But then because of the hardship that he's gone through, he gets humbled and he begins to think about this. And he gets a job feeding pigs. Now, you and I, most of us here, if not all, are not Jewish. And so we need to climb back into Jewish culture and realize that for someone to, to feed pigs was four times dirtier than to be with a prostitute. Which is weird to me. But that is the way their culture was. And so this man had hit the, the bottom. He had hit the bottom. And then he began to think. And he and he thought, you know, the servants in my father's house have it better than I do, maybe I'll go back and I'll tell my dad, I will work for you. And I just want to pause here and remind you that this is Jesus' story, and Jesus put those words into the mouth of the prodigal son because it represents all of our hearts. We all have something deep inside of us saying, if only I can work for God and merit his smile. That's why Jesus put it in the story. So the son turns, and he says, I'm going to go back to dad. That represents repentance, a big biblical word saying, I've come to an end of myself. I know I'm a sinner. I must return to the father. That's what repentance is. So he comes back to the father, and the father, and it's interesting the way Jesus tells the story, is the father first saw, and then he felt, compassion, and then he ran. The the word there in Jesus' story, the word ran, is the Greek word, is the same word that Paul uses later when he describes describes an Olympic event, running. I don't know what your view of God is, but God the Father, seeing the Son, runs toward him. Before the son can get out any words of how I'm going to clean up my life and how I'm going to stop doing the things that I'm doing and I'm going to be the sort of Christian that you could be proud of, before he gets those words out, the father puts a robe on him, puts a ring on his finger, and the ring is like this credit card. It's like all of my wealth belongs to you, you're in my family puts sandals on his shoes, kisses him, embraces him, and says, we're going to kill the fatted calf in celebration because you were dead and you're alive again. Now, I want you to picture yourself as that prodigal son, that prodigal daughter, because it's easier to begin the Christian journey and to feel the love of God, and it's harder when you begin to follow Jesus to remember where you started. Are you in agreement with that? We forget that because we go back to what the prodigal son, I will work for you. And we miss out on what the story is all about. So this story, in this story, Jesus reveals God in a stunning way. Jesus reveals God as a loving father who embraces us. It's emotional. Who clothes us. We are clothed in God's righteousness, who blesses us, unmerited favor from this day on, who receives us as a son or a daughter. And this is the hard part. Unless you've had a dad that was affectionate and loving and embraces you, it's hard to believe that God could actually feel this way and celebrate you. Isn't that hard? Do you, do you feel celebrated here today? The gospel, the good news, is that God moves us toward us and celebrates us as God, as Jesus revealed in that story. So the main point, to get right to it, that is a struggle for us, but this is what I want you to hear. God wants to make us sinners. Happy in Christ. The kind of happiness where you can just relax and know, I am covered. God has moved toward me. God wants you to know that in Christ... Once you come back home through repentance and faith in Jesus, that you're loved and you're celebrated. So if you're Christ's follower here today, that prodigal son story is your story. And God wants you to feel it. And if you're not yet, if you are a seeker, this story could be. This could be your story. Your story could shift from this day on where you could say, because of what Jesus did for me, I know that I'm loved and celebrated. I want to take another look at this prodigal son here. Just look at the image. A friend of mine who's a painter made this. And you see the delight in the father's face. And what word would you use to describe the look on the son's face? He's like, he's shocked. He's in awe. It's like, I can't receive this. This is over the top. I can't, I can't really receive what you're telling me. Is true. And that, in short, is what the book of Galatians is all about. Galatians has been called the battle cry of Christian freedom. When you come to know Jesus, you're set free from your sin. You're set free from the law, from any standard that you're trying to live up to. You're set free from a hamster wheel of performance so that you can delight in the God who delights in you. Now, just as an introduction, uh, I don't know if you've noticed this, but Paul, as he writes letters to the churches, he brings emotion into his writing. And some of them, like Romans, doesn't have much emotion because he doesn't know these people personally. These are people that Paul personally led to, to, to Jesus. And he writes out of angst. He writes out of deep turmoil. And I'm going to point out the places where you see, like, this is a lot of emotion going on here. And Paul brings that angst into the story. Okay. Everyone with me so far? You need to understand the backstory. The backstory is complicated, it involves people groups that are distant from us. It involves the story of believing Jews, first of all. Jews, church people. Gone to church all their life. then They've been brought up with the law of Moses, keeping the Ten Commandments, circumcising their sons on the eighth day, which was a symbol of being a Jew. Observing the law, going to the temple to make a sacrifice. This is what they were brought up believing. And then on the church's opening day, on the first sermon, 3,000 of these Jews became jesus believing Jews. Now, it's important that you understand this. They did not believe themselves to be converting. They weren't changing their religion. They were embracing what their religion taught all along, that Jesus was coming and was coming for them. The second group is the Gentiles, many of us here, unchurched people, not brought up with the law of Moses, not brought up going to temple or going to church. Not brought up feeling the need to make some kind of sacrifice. Not being aware of sin's reality. So very, very different. And the Jews and the Gentiles, they did not like each other. There was a deep animosity between them. There was a door in the temple, the Jewish temple, that said to Gentiles, enter here at risk of death. You come to our church, we'll take your life. There was a little bit of animosity here. Jew and Gentile did not eat at one another's house. But then some of the Jesus-believing Jews began to reach out to some of the Gentiles, and they invited them to believe in Jesus. And this changed everything. Without having the law, without going to temple, without having all of this background, they believed that someone loved me enough to send his son on the cross to die for me. Make sure you hear this. The Gentiles did not understand themselves to be converting to Judaism. They were not converting to the Ten Commandments. They were not converting to circumcision. They were not converting to going to the temple. They were not converting to the law of Moses. So now, in one church, you had Jew and Gentile, churched and unchurched together. Many of you know this, but we did something years ago that uh, was on a Thursday night where we went into a country western bar. Anyone remember uh, 8 Seconds, country western bar? And uh, So we went in there and we advertised this and drew a crowd of like 600 people in eight weeks. It was kind of an unprecedented thing and an unusual thing. God was just moving. And we did this series called Questions Christians Hope You Never Ask. We wanted to be bold as we reached out to unchurched people to say, we're not afraid to share the truth of Jesus with you. We want to tackle the big questions. And so we did. We... Uh, created a billboard that said eight seconds is now a church, no bull, which we thought was rather cute and funny, and so did a lot of other people knowing there's no mechanical bull, in case you didn't get it. I remember one night speaking on forgiveness and having an unchurched girl come up to me afterward, and her lip was trembly, and, and she looked at me, tears were in her eyes and she said do do you mean do you mean that i can be forgiven and i said yes can i tell you more about jesus short time later i shared with some people what we were doing at 8 seconds and they were offended They were offended that we would reach out to unchurched people in a bar because they had a faulty definition of holiness, thinking that it's avoiding the world instead of loving Jesus in the middle of the world. And that offense is exactly what the Jews felt toward the Gentiles that were involved in their church. That is the backdrop to the book of Galatians we have this tension. Now that Gentiles have believed in Jesus, don't they need to do something to remain righteous in God's sight? So there's a fourth people group, and uh, this is called the Judaizers. The Judaizers were Jewish people, uh, also aka, also known as the party of the circumcision, which I find kind of funny, (laughs) We're having a party. Come over to my house. What are you doing? <laughs> Circumcision. You know, it's just weird. They claim to be Christians. They believe Jesus was the Messiah. But they also believe that the Jewish law was required to become righteous. And they had tried to improve the gospel with law. So the math of the Judaizers was Jesus' death. Plus, my law-keeping equals my righteousness. The math of the gospel is Christ's death on the cross makes me righteous. And that leads to spontaneous, organic, living out a life of love and faith. Okay, Acts 15, verse 1. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you're circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And so here we see the whole question of law and works and what a human being must do to become righteous. And so the whole church gathered to think about this question, specifically the question of circumcision. You can imagine the Gentile men were rather nervous Like, I'm really thinking about following Jesus, but uh, I don't know. That was the question that was being debated. And so they had this big debate. They went back and forth, and then one person stood up to end the debate. It was James, the brother of Jesus. I, I think that alone is proof of the resurrection. Like, if your brother can convince you that you're the son of God, that's kind of powerful. So James stands up in verse 19. It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. And he essentially says, we are saved by grace alone. Let us not confuse people with adding rules and regulations and requirements. Let me just say, as a person that was brought up in an unchurched home, when you go to church for the first time, it just feels weird. It feels like, I don't belong here. Like, I'm a little nervous walking in the door. I feel unclean. And everybody here feels so proper and so dressed up if they only knew the things that I had done. And then when Christians don't welcome them, they feel like they can't fit in. And, and I share that just because many churches make it so difficult for people to understand what Jesus has done for them. Y'all with me? We ready for, the Galat- for Galatians now? All right. Galatians 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised them from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me to the churches of Galatia." Just so you know, Galatia is modern day Turkey. And Paul is beginning this letter this way, being very purposeful. He's saying, no human being commissioned me to do what I'm doing. This gospel that I bring to you is not man-made. I didn't get my degree online Jesus Christ revealed himself to me and this gospel this good news this will blow your mind it's different than anything you've ever heard but this is the truth the gospel truth verse 3 grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ Sometimes it's good to just slow down and not like breeze through the introduction here. Grace to you. It doesn't say condemnation to you. A standard to you. A performance that like you never arrive to you. A bunch of rules that you will never live up to. To you. It says grace to you. Unmerited favor. And what flows from that is peace. It's the Hebrew word shalom. It's it's well-being. It's The word shalom actually means life works the way it's supposed to. And when we experience and begin to live out grace, then rather than stewing in our frustration toward my wife for four days, we move toward people in in grace. Verse 4. Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins... No, let's just stop right there. Go back to the last. He gave himself for our sins. Judaism gives us the ten laws of Moses. Buddhism gives us the eightfold path. Islam gives us the five pillars of Islam. And God gave himself. If you've ever read this book, you've likely just breezed right past this verse which is the heart of the gospel. What God di- does in response to us is He puts on human skin, comes down, and dies for us. God gave Himself. In every other religious system, we must do things to attain to some level of righteousness. The gospel Gives righteousness. In every other religious system, we must do works to be acceptable to God. The only work done for us was by Jesus on the cross when he said, It is finished. Next verse. Who gave himself for our sins... To deliver us from the present evil age. That sounds kind of apocalyptic, doesn't it? You know, this present evil age, like, in my mind, I conjure up all the movies that come out around Halloween. Like, this world is so evil and so dark and so sinister. It'd be easy for us to think about the shooting recently in Texas where someone walked into a church and just unloaded. Or a man in Florida, I think about a week ago, who shot his wife and kids. And maybe that's what Paul is talking about, that the world is so darkly stained with evil that that's what Jesus came to deliver us from. And our present evil age includes that, but that's not what he's talking about. Our present evil age is a world that essentially says, I'm going to live for myself and live disconnected from the Father. The evil that Paul is referring to here is simply what all of us have lived in before we knew Jesus. It's simply saying, I'm going to live independently from God, and God sent Jesus to deliver us out of that according to the will of God, of our God and Father. I don't want to make too much of this, but I I just want you to see that God willed your deliverance. And this is how I think about it. If God, the strong-willed God, The strong-willed God who always gets what he wants. If God willed for me to be delivered, I'm delivered. I am set free. I'm not stuck in my sin anymore. I've been completely and absolutely changed. I'm not part of the kingdom of darkness. I'm part of the kingdom of light. I don't go back and forth. I am in the light. I will always be in the light. So look at this image of these chains. We are forgiven, forgiven for my past, freed from my sin, rescued from religious performance, placed in God's house and under God's favor. You better get used to this because this will never change. You're always under God's favor. Or as a friend texted me this last week, Overcoming is in my DNA. Chain-breaking is in my bloodline. Grace courses through these veins. Victory is my destiny. This isn't just positive thinking. This is the mentality of someone who can say, I've been delivered. I'm changed. Galatians 1.5 To whom be the glory forever and ever. What is Paul doing here? He's worshiping. What he has said so far in four verses has so affected him, the thought that we don't need to measure up to God or earn God's smile, the fact that he gave himself, he can't help but say, to you be the glory. He does this in Romans too, after 11 chapters, he just breaks into celebrating what God has done. And let me say this, until grace gets into your emotions, and until it changes how you feel about yourself and your identity, how you think about yourself, it's just theology. It's meant to set your heart on fire to make you alive to God. So look at the cross with me. Grace is gained righteousness at Christ's expense. Just look at the suffering of the Son and think, do you think you can ever improve that? Can you add anything to what has already been done for you? And the answer is, of course, no. So we can sit in this. It has helped me to think, God's love for me right now at this moment is no less than when his son died for me. That's what grace does. Verse 6 I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ. I am astonished. I'm shocked. This is where the angst of Paul is coming out. I'm amazed. I'm bewildered. When we get to chapter 3, he gets frustrated and says, who's bewitched you? Like, who put you under a spell? What you're doing makes no sense. If you started by Jesus dying for you, how can you add to that or improve that? So we see Paul's frustration as these Galatians are being tempted by circumcision. It feels weird to say that. Being tempted to think that there's something that they can do, that they can practice circumcision. Not something you want to practice, by the way. Um, And that, that somehow would change God's approval of their lives. Look again at the prodigal son. Look at the look of being stunned and awe. Now, you may have heard, some of you may have heard many sermons on grace, and I just want you to receive this from me. This is where the struggle is right here, to believe that we're celebrated, to believe that grace actually means this. You guys know who Martin Luther is? is still alive. Martin Luther came along in church history in a time when the church had drifted from the Scriptures, and he brought about what is called the Reformation, where people rediscovered the gospel of grace. So he preached grace over and over and over and over again. That's what Martin Luther did. And Martin Luther said this, I myself have been preaching and cultivating the message of grace for almost 20 years And still I feel the old clinging dirt of wanting to deal with God that I can contribute something, that I can contribute something so that he will have to give me his grace in exchange for my holiness. Still, I cannot get it into my head that I must yield myself to sheer grace. Yet I know that this is what I should and must do. An honest confession of the ongoing struggle. I shared this image with you all last week of being drenched. When we put our faith in Jesus, we come into a position called a state of grace. We are under a constant downpour of God's grace. And what that means is that on days where I feel like I'm really kicking it, and I'm really walking in the Spirit, and I'm being thoughtful of people, and I'm engaged in human relationships, and I see the person who has a sign around their neck, and they need help, and I give them some help, and I notice that my kids might not be doing well, and I'm sensitive enough to give up an anniversary. On those days, I'm in a state of grace. And on days when I am angry at my wife and not happy in Jesus and frustrated with God and how Christianity sometimes is hard and doesn't move as quickly as I want it to, that in those days, I too am in a state of grace. And this is one of the hardest things in my life is to constantly remind myself in those days that the gospel is true and I am free and I am covered completely soaking wet in the grace of God that flows from the cross of Christ. The gospel is for seekers. So if this morning... You've not yet come to the cross of Jesus. I invite you to come there. Unload all of your burdens. Receive what he has done for you. Don't let it be in vain. But the gospel is also for Christians. We need to be reminded day after day that we are right with God because and only because of what he's done for us. Let's go back to verse 6 and 7. I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. When you add works, when you add performance to the gospel, it changes the very nature of it. If I make burgers for my family later today, and I have a hamburger, and I add a pickle to it, what is it? It's still a burger. If I add onions, what is it? Still a burger. Tomato, cheese. That's good. That's good. Totally destroyed my analogy. Let's say you have a veggie burger. You have a veggie burger. Yeah, it's not really. Would you let me share this? (laughs) Let's say you have a veggie burger. And you add some meat to it. Ooh. You totally changed the nature of the burger. It is no longer a hamburger. It is now a veggie burger. Or the other way around. I'm messing this up as badly. Do you guys get what I'm saying? I just want to know that I can move on. Do we all understand? You change the nature of the gospel when you add your performance or law or good works or whatever you call it. Let's move on. Verse 8. You guys will never forget this illustration, right? Uh, Anyone that comes over to my house gets a free burger. Yes. Yeah, unfortunately, veggie burgers. Okay, verse 8. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to to the one we preached to you, let him be accursed, just in case you missed what I said. Verse 9. As we have said before, like two seconds ago, now I say it again. If anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. That word accursed is the Greek word anathema. It means damned to hell. So in our PC culture that says it doesn't really matter what you believe, substance doesn't matter as long as you're sincere, Paul says actually substance does matter, what you do with Jesus does matter, whether you get atoned for sin does matter. And the reason he is using such strong language is is the mentality of the Judaizers toward Paul. You've made the gospel so easy for pagans, for seekers, for Gentiles. You've made it so easy for God to save a human being. We think you're doing it just to draw a crowd, just to be Mr. Popular. And so Paul says, basically, you think I'm trying to be popular? Well, you may be going to hell if you're preaching something different than me. Do you see the logic behind what he is saying here? There's only one gospel that saves, and that's the gospel of a bloody cross. Verse 10, and we'll conclude with this verse. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I wouldn't be a servant of Christ. I wouldn't be a bondservant is the Greek word here. And I want you just to sit in this here for a minute. Paul is responding to the Judaizers who think he has simplified the gospel of grace because he wants to draw a crowd. He's trying to please human beings. And he says, think about this with me. You think if I'm trying to be a man pleaser, I would follow Jesus? That doesn't make any sense. If you go to your crowd of seekers, to people that don't follow Jesus and you loudly proclaim, I believe and follow Jesus Christ only, that's not how you gain popularity in this world. And this Greek word, bondservant, has an Old Testament meaning, and it's important that you catch this. In the Old Testament, if a slave, after so many years, after seven years, could be set free, and the slave... Sometimes a slave would say, I don't want to be set free. I want to be your slave forever. You're such a good master. I want to be your bond servant, your slave. And they would take the ear of the slave, put it against a doorpost, and put a nail through their ear to indicate you are now the bond servant, the slave of this master forever. And Paul, as he thinks about Christ and what Christ has done for us, he says, that's what's been done for me. I've been set free, but that freedom is so paradoxical. It does something to my personality that sets me so free. I don't need human approval anymore. I'm set free from that. I can live for one king. I can be who I really am. Let me put it this way. Jesus in you with your personality unleashed because of grace. You not worrying about what people think of you, but embracing the gospel at the level of your emotion and saying, I've been set free by the King of Kings, by Jesus Messiah. That's what your world needs and that's what you need. And that's what's been done for us through the gospel of freedom through the cross of Christ. So let's stand together here and let's proclaim. Let's proclaim some truth over us. I will live from this. So pray with me as we enter into worship. God, if you have done this for me, we all say this to you, if you have done this for me, I will live in freedom. I will receive your grace. I will consider the cross of Christ sufficient to cover everything I've ever done. I will consider the cross of Christ sufficient to bring me into a state of grace from which I can't escape if I tried. I will allow myself with the help of the Holy Spirit. I choose today to believe and to allow myself to feel celebrated, to feel free, to feel that I am in a great story of a great deliverance out of a great love to bring about a great freedom. I will not diminish the gospel I will not make your grace small. I will boast in it. I will think about it. I will walk in grace, empowered by the Holy Spirit and to the glory of Jesus, my King. In his name we pray, and we come now to worship you through Jesus Christ.